The book of Proverbs states that the rich man and the poor man have one thing in common. Both will enter into the grave. And indeed, this is true. But eventual death is not the only thing that we all have in common. We all have priorities, certain principles by which we live our life. Guiding principles by which we choose to use the resources that God has given to us. Our time, our talents, our possessions, our money, anything that we have. And for some of us, uh, our priorities are very conscious. They're at the tip of our minds most of the time, guiding us as we choose to use our time uh, and our possessions. And for some of us, uh, they're more unconscious. In other words, we don't sit down and evaluate exactly why we chose to do a certain thing or make a certain choice in our everyday life. Now, for the conscious person, he is more like the, the businessman who will pull out his trusty day timer and he will sit down uh, during the course of a day and look through it and make decisions for the day, for the week, for the month, for the next six months, according to the things that are important to him in his life, in his business. And for the homemaker as well, often she will sit down and make decisions in the same way in order to maximize the use of her time. Each of these people are very much aware of what is important to them and what their priorities are. Then there are people who do not function in quite so systematic of a manner. Some of you may relate to that. Uh, I have an acquaintance whom I call Larry the Lounge Lizard <laughs> who falls into that category and Larry is a real person that I have come into contact with. Uh, and Larry does not carry a day timer. Larry could care less about a day timer or any other uh, scheduling device because Larry uh, is not too concerned about time. His goal is to see how he can get uh, by in life, mooching off of other people. His priority is pretty well set. Survival without any hassles. Uh, I doubt that Larry uh, thinks very much at all about priorities, uh, and yet he still has them. So we all have those priorities, an itemized list in a descending order of the things that are important to us. And priorities in themselves are rather generic, not necessarily good or bad, but like habits, we all have them. And the way in which we uh, determine them has great bearing as to the kind of person that we will be. Proper priorities will greatly help us uh, in developing our relationship with God, in becoming more Christ-like, while misplaced priorities will lead us to a deteriorating, deteriorating relationship with God. And the nation of Israel stands as our Old Testament illustration of just how important priorities are in either developing or deteriorating our relationship with God. This morning, I would like for us to look in the book of Haggai, chapter 1. And two weeks from now, we'll finish the book, uh, chapter 2. To look into the life 
of these people who are very precious to God and who made some mistakes. And we can learn from the mistakes which they made. Now, some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, Haggai, where is Haggai? Here, Haggai! Well, Haggai is a little-known jewel in the back of your Old Testament between Zechariah and Zephaniah. You know exactly where it is right now, don't you? And you're probably having a hard time recalling if you've ever learned anything from the book of Haggai. Well, Haggai (coughs) exists in the same period of history as the events in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. In fact, in studying Haggai, it is extremely helpful to know what has taken place uh, in Israel's history as described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'm going to give you a very brief uh, history lesson in a minute or two. If you have a pencil or pen handy, you can jot down some dates that may be helpful for you uh, later on in looking up some things. But it starts with uh, the year 586 B.C. And in that year, Judah, the southern kingdom of a divided Israel, fell to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And he deported all but the poorest of the Jews and began the 70 years of captivity, which was God's discipline on Israel. Then in 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire overthrew Babylon, and uh, Cyrus, the Persian monarch, took control of the throne. And about a year later, during his first year in 538 B.C., Cyrus believed that he had received a directive from the Lord God to help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the reason we know that is because of the book of Esther. In the very beginning of it, it starts out, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So with that directive, Cyrus made it possible for all the Jews who wanted to, to return to their homeland, to help rebuild the temple and the city and eventually the nation. But only about 50,000, a very small number of all the Jews who were in captivity, chose to return to the homeland, to give up the good life that they were enjoying in Babylon. And over the next two years, an expeditionary force led by Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, came back to Jerusalem, built the foundation, but then stopped when they received some outside opposition by some non-Jewish residents in the land. And years later, in 521 B.C., uh, Darius the Great ascended to the throne 
of the Persian Empire, and he was very sympathetic towards the Jewish religious heritage. And that opened the door for Haggai to return from Babylon to Jerusalem in 520 as a prophet sent from God with a message to exhort the people who had returned the remnant to rebuild the temple. And if you were to take and mark at the very beginning of chapter 1 and put down the date, August 29th, 520, that's when Haggai started his ministry. And then put at the end of chapter 2, December 18th, 520, that's when Haggai ended his ministry. He only had a ministry of four months, and during those four months, he preached four messages. The first one is in chapter 1, which we'll look at today, and the other three we'll look at two weeks from today. So it is in that uh, context that we begin looking at this first chapter, which talks about the problem of priorities. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people, this people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Some of you are going, uh-oh. Terry found his proof text for our building program, and he is now going to lay it on us. Well, as much as I am tempted to misuse and abuse God's word in that way, that is not the reason that I chose uh, this text this morning. In fact, our own building program relates only to this message in a very indirect way as far as the principles. So relax, sit back, and enjoy this morning the principles of life which we will learn from the people of this time. Now the first thing to notice here is God's emotional disgust with his people. Throughout scripture, God refers to his chosen people as my people. But when we look at it here, we see that he says, this people. I think he's disgusted with what they're doing. And so he says, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. You see, this remnant has fallen into the ageless defense mechanism known as rationalization. They had been sent 17 years ago to rebuild the temple, and for two years they progressed on the work until things got tough, and then they quit. They determined that the time wasn't right. They didn't know when the time would be right. All they knew was that it, it was not convenient then, it was not convenient now, and it was not going to be convenient in the foreseeable future. Their rationalization had led them to disobedience toward God. And we all know what rationalization is, because we all do it. We're all good at it. It's that small voice that says, Terry, you don't have to change messy diapers. You change lots of diapers all the time. And besides that, you know the kids would rather have mom change their diapers anyway. <laughs> right, moms? 
And so I'm tempted, when the need is there, to sit back and watch the 49ers and the Chargers play their football game and let life roll by until mom responds to their need. Or it might be that small voice that's telling that hard-working housewife and mother, you need a break today. You've been working hard lately. You need to go shopping. (laughs) You need to dip into the budget, even though you can't afford it, and go out and spend some money on yourself. Buy something new. Don't worry. Your hubby will fix the budget when he comes home. Everything will be all right. No problems. Or if you're a teenager, you're thinking, my parents don't know up from down. I mean, they are really unenlightened people. What do they know about me to raise me today? I mean, they grew up years ago. I'm in today's world. So I need somebody to tell me what to do who's into it today. So I'm going to disregard what my parents have to tell me and do my own thing. That's rationalization, folks. Pure and simple. It's that way that we go about getting our own way, either by doing something we should not do or not doing something that we should do. Now, not only was God displeased with what they weren't doing, he was displeased with what they were doing and the attitude that they had towards life. In verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies desolate? You see, the issue is not so much the reconstructing of a building. The issue was their relationship to God. You see, the temple was the very center of their relationship with God. Without that temple, they could not carry out their ceremonial worship prescribed by the law of Moses. And that's why our building program does not relate to the temple that they had. But our very lifestyle does relate to a great degree. See, they had a problem of misplaced priorities. These people had begun to focus in on building their own kingdom and disregarding building the kingdom of God. And so they had become uh, destitute without a center of worship. Spiritual paralysis had set in, which led to a selfish, self-centered, man-centered lifestyle rather than a God-centered lifestyle. And is there a message here for us? I think so. Remember, I started talking about priorities in the beginning. And the truth of the matter is that we all have two sets of priorities. Those priorities that we hold up in high esteem and that we idealize. And if someone were to ask you as a Christian and say, what are your priorities? You'd spit out, you know, the top six without any problem. God, spouse, kids, job, ministry, whatever. But there's another set of priorities in our life. The set of priorities that we actually live by day to day. And when we begin to calculate over a week, over a month, over a year, how we're spending our time and energies and resources, we begin to see what our true priorities really are. And sometimes we aren't too happy about that. You see, what happens is that we say, well, God, he's number one. 
Spouse, she's number two. Children, they're number three. Job, number four. Ministry, number five. Leisure time, number six. Well, pretty soon, number four, job, becomes number one. Number one, God, drops down to number three. Number six, leisure, slips into number two. And number two and three, relationships with spouse and family are nowhere to be found. See, we become controlled by the urgent and by the pleasurable rather than by the important. And when that happens, our relationship with God begins to deteriorate. Too little God in our lives leads to problems in our life. So God says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. The word here, consider, if you look in your margin in some of your Bibles, it says, Set your heart on. What God is asking these people to do is to set their heart on their ways. On the way they're living their life. He's asking them to think with their heart as to what is really important to them. To evaluate their attitude which controls their actions. And what were their actions? Well, they would work but have nothing to show for it. They would eat but they wouldn't be satisfied. They would bring home wages and it would slip away and there wouldn't be enough money left over for the emergencies or the extra needs. And we fall into that same kind of rat race and hassle. Whether we earn $10,000 or $100,000, we tend to get ourselves overcommitted financially to where we cannot reach the good goals. And we get frustrated by that. We end up with a life that's far from being satisfied with what we want. We tend to lose focus. And when our life is out of focus, we lack satisfaction because greed consumes without ever giving any satisfaction. We tend to think if a little is good, more is better, and too much is just right. And that's how we tend to live our life at times. Some of you take pictures and use a 35 millimeter camera. And as you take pictures with that kind of camera, you have to adjust the focus from time to time. You know, a little bit in, a little bit out, to get the picture just right. And when you take a picture that's out of focus and you get it back, you're disheartened by that. You're dissatisfied with that picture. But when we take a picture and the focus is just right, We're satisfied because everything is in detail. Everything is just as it should be. Everything is just right. And that's what God wants us to aim at, is getting our life in the proper focus. You see, these people, the remnant, they had the right subject matter. Work, food, clothing, but the wrong focus. God was left out of their picture. And sometimes we tend to leave God out of our picture. 
They were very frustrated. They lacked satisfaction. Their life was devoid of meaning. And sometimes that's the way our life is. Because if God is in the picture at all, he's a fuzzy shadow in the background, out of focus. And so we need to consider about bringing God into focus. You see, we may be focusing in on that new car rather than developing a relationship with a neighbor down the street. We may be focusing in on getting that second home in the mountains rather than focusing in on our family relationships. So when we get out of focus, we tend to get frustrated with ourselves and frustrated with life. So too little of God leads to too much greed, which can lead to God's discipline. And that's exactly where Haggai goes with this believing remnant. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go to the mountain and bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Verse 8 is the only command here in the chapter. And if we were to restate it for today, it would say something like this. Work on developing your relationship with me in order that I might be pleased, in order that I might be glorified. You see, for us as Christians, that's what life really boils down to. It boils down to focusing in on the things that please God, that God may be glorified. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, the light is our life. And when it shines in such a way as to be pleasing to God, the natural result is that God is glorified. The Apostle Paul puts it a little bit differently in Romans 12. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. But when we are uh, out of uh, our appropriate place and relationship with God, he, like a good father, chastens us, disciplines us for our own correction and our own good. And I'd like you to notice here that God is actively involved in the lives of these people and drawing them back to himself. For he says when they come home and they are expecting a certain amount in their crop, they're disappointed because I blow it away. In verse 11, I called for a drought that God is actively involved in their lives to bring them back to himself. And he makes it clear as to the reason that he has taken this action, just so there'll be no mistake 
on the part of the believing remnant. He says in verse 9, Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. I'm sure that that broke God's heart. Emotionally, he was grieved. To see this people come back from Babylon, spend two years in vigorous work rebuilding the temple, developing their relationship with him, and then stop. To stop doing what is right. Just as you, as a parent, are grieved when your child knows the right thing to do, the appropriate thing to do, and yet they choose not to do it in order to gain their own selfish desire. And you watch from an objective perspective and it breaks your heart. That's what happens with God. We break his heart. I think sometimes we fail to realize just how much our own sin and our own unrighteousness grieves God. It emotionally touches him deeply, hurts him deeply. And yet God does not forsake us. Even though these people held him off at arm's length and said, God, we don't want to get involved with you right now. His love would not allow him to just stand by. I was thinking about it this week. It was just simply amazing as I thought about God's love. It's so great. Because he loves us so much, he created us with the choice of obedience or disobedience to him. He said, I'm going to create you and it's your choice. But then on the other hand, his love always pursues us. Even though we may choose to disobey, his love is still involved in pursuing us to draw us back to himself. And it's the kind of love that I have a hard time understanding, a hard time getting a hold of. And I hope as a parent I do, because I'll need it with my own children, I'm sure, to have that kind of love. But sometimes we forget about that aspect of God, that aspect of his love, that he loves us so much that while we push him off, he accepts that, but he works around our stiff arm to tackle us and love us and hold on to us. But yet he also makes certain that we understand who's responsible for the disobedience. In verse 10 he says, Therefore, because of you, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. You see, we cannot sit back as Christians, as children of God, and point the finger and say, God, it's your fault. You're the one to blame for the mess I'm in. You're the one who's made it so hard for me. No. God says, it's your fault for not obeying me, but I love you, and I'll help you, and I'll draw you back to myself. See, we as Christians should not squirm out from under the disciplining hand of God at times. He puts his hand upon us, and we want to squirm out from under it and go out in another direction, rather than feeling the pressure of it and responding to it, so that we might grow and learn and become more Christ-like in our own lives. And so I hope for each of us that as we feel the hand of God weighing upon us, that we will not seek to get out from underneath it, but we'll seek to respond to it and to see what he would have to tell us. 
So the time has come. The rebuke is over. They have to respond. These people can respond positively to God, or they can respond negatively to God. The choice is up to them. Let's read on. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So what we see here is that there was a happy ending to what looked like a dismal story. And before we go too much farther... I want you to take a a little exercise here to help you in applying these principles of truth. So if you have a pen or pencil, feel free to mark up your Bible. God really won't mind. And there are four phrases here that I'd like you to note. In verse 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord. Again, in verse 12, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then in verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. And in verse 14, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. You see, the people responded in obedience. Their obedience led them to worship God. That means that they began to realize who they were and who they were in relationship to God. They began to understand who God is. Then God responded by empowering them and equipping them to carry out the service that he had asked them to perform. God never asks us to do anything for which he will not give us the power to do it. And that's one of the joys of the Christian life. And then, after they were empowered, the people responded in service to God. They went to work on the temple as they were supposed to do. And the... the, uh, other interesting note here in verse 14 is the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and of Joshua and the people. See, sometimes God calls us to do things and we're emotionally flat. But perhaps you have experienced it just as I have, is that when we respond in obedience to the word, to God, that he comes along and stirs our heart emotionally. And he gives us that emotional desire eventually to do that which he wants us to do. So that we're not doing it out of drudgery, but we're doing it out of a glad and joyful heart. Because the Lord has stirred our heart emotionally. Now for us, I hope that we would look at this and and learn that we need to respond in obedience to God's word whenever it comes in contact with our life. And some of that response will be realizing that God is the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of our lives, and that's how we worship him, by realizing who he is and who we are in relationship to him. And when we do that, then God will come alongside us through his Holy Spirit and empower us to do that for which we thought we could never do. 
And in, with that empowerment, we will be able to serve God and building His kingdom rather than being so concerned about building our own kingdom. And it works both ways. That when we know what to do and we respond, God will empower us. And when we do not know what to do specifically, but we just jump in to get involved in the kingdom of God in some place, God will also empower us. And my most uh, clear example of this would be those of you who have considered and gotten involved in teaching Sunday school here at Cole. Some of you go with fear and trembling. Some of you respond negatively because of fear and trembling. And say, I just can't do that. No way. Those little kids, they'll run all over me. Yes, you can do that. And you need to consider praying to God as to whether you should do that. Because He'll empower you. He'll enable you. He'll make it a great experience for you to get involved in His service and teaching little kids about who He is. It'd be a fantastic thing. Don't run from it. Some of you get challenged in other ministries, in Salt Company, in Men's Fellowship, in Women's Fellowship, with Junior High, with Senior High, with College, all along the way. And some of you say, no, it's just not convenient won't be convenient. I don't know when it will ever be convenient. The truth of the matter is, it'll never be convenient. But that's okay. Because God can handle that. God can make it a joy for you to serve Him in some capacity. We just have to respond with obedience. See, there are all kinds of needs around us. All you have to do is look in the need sheet each week, and you find all kinds of needs. There are spoken and unspoken needs within this body of believers and outside this body of believers. And God's method is to use us as people to meet those needs. I had the joy of doing that yesterday in an impromptu fashion. I received a phone call and someone needed some help. And I wasn't real excited initially. But I said, God, I need to be obedient. I've been studying your word all week about it. I better respond to it in my own life. And so I went out and met the need, talked with the people, and hopefully they've been helped. We need to be able to be a little more, more spontaneous for God. It's all a matter of our priorities, folks, friends. Where are our priorities? We all have priorities. Where are they? And perhaps we can spend some time this week thinking about our priorities and seeing if God would have us rethink our priorities. Remember, the rich man and the poor man have one thing in common. They both have priorities by which they live life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word of Haggai the prophet. Though he is little known and though he is tucked away, he is indeed a jewel. And we thank you that when you give us a directive, we respond in obedience, you will empower us. You will change us supernaturally. You will stir up our hearts so that we will enjoy serving you. We will enjoy building the kingdom of God. Thank you that you teach us that serving ourselves and focusing in on building our own kingdom will only lead us to be dissatisfied. 
that the greed in our life will never satisfy us the way in which you can satisfy us. Thank you so much that you love us, that you pursue us with open arms when we push you away, that you love us so much that you discipline us to draw us to yourself. God, in every way that I can think of this morning, you are truly amazing, and I am truly bewildered. Amen.